Today's episode is sponsored by Newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper archive. Newspapers.com makes it easy to find your family's story. With more than half a billion digitized newspaper pages from the 1690s to today. Search for obituaries, marriage announcements, birth announcements, photos, and more in papers from across the United States, the UK, Canada, and beyond, stretching back three generations. For listeners of this podcast, Newspapers.com is offering 20% off a Publisher Extra subscription. Just use the coupon code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE at checkout. That's code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE, all one word, for 20% off Publisher Extra. Welcome to the March 2023 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we're tackling those elusive maiden names. Author and professional genealogist Shelley Bishop is here to help us track them down. Then in our Family History Home segment, David Frixell is back to help us remove pesky odors from old family photos. And then we're going to wrap things up over at the editor's desk with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. And uh, he's going to tell us what we can look forward to in the upcoming issue of the magazine. And he's going to share one of his favorite newspaper research tips that led to a surprising find. As always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is Tree Talk. Well, as always, we kick off our segments with Tree Talk, and Rachel Christian is the social media editor at Family Tree Magazine, and of course, that makes her the perfect person to find out what's trending in the world of genealogy. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Well, we're already well into 2023, and I imagine you have several new things for us. What's been going on? I do, yes. So first up, I wanted to mention a new tool from MyHeritage. Uh, They released a fun new feature that lets you share a video of your ethnicity estimate. So it will zoom around the globe and highlight the different countries that you have DNA markers from. Uh, And of course, you can share it to platforms like TikTok or Instagram. It kind of follows in the footsteps of Deep Nostalgia and Deep Story, those other very popular tools that they released. Oh, yeah, they've been giving us so many ways to put it out there in front of uh, all the non-genealogists in our family. It's great. They have, yeah. And I I don't think we've seen the last of that. Um, I think that's a a trend that will very much continue. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about that tool, we'll have a link in the show notes. Speaking of stories and, and kind of the intersection between online genealogy and social media, The next thing I wanted to mention is a new genealogy platform called Storied. Um, It's a tree building and record site with a special emphasis on storytelling. So they have um, storytelling features baked in from the very get-go. This site existed before. It's actually a rebrand of a newspaper and archival record site called World Archive, if any of our listeners are familiar with that. Uh, but they've rebranded, they've relaunched, they're a new platform. And the beta version is live as of this recording. If our listeners are going to Roots Tech, Storied will be at Roots Tech, and they'll also have a virtual booth. But I'm 
very, very interested in what that company will do because they are launching with that, with the intention of helping people create those stories. So not just research, but research and share at once. So I'll be very, very interested to see where that goes and the sort of features that they'll offer genealogists. Yeah, that's quite a trend, like you said. So that's storied.com, S-T-O-R-I-E-D.com, correct? Yep. And uh, we'll have a link to that, to the beta version of the site in the show notes as well, as well as their virtual booth, if we can track that down. So speaking of Roots Tech, when this episode goes up, I believe the conference will be just about kicking off. So if you are going to Salt Lake, please stop by our booth. We would love to see you. Uh, I'll leave our booth number in the show notes. Uh, But if you're not attending in person, of course, Roots Tech has a massive virtual component. So we'll have a virtual booth as well. And Lisa, I believe you'll be there virtually as well. Yes, absolutely. I'm doing uh, four big sessions. They're going to be live And um, so I'm really excited to be seeing everybody online. It's an amazing resource for uh, folks. Even if you attend, you can still go back and go check out all of the online videos as well after the uh, conference is over. So wonderful. Okay, so you'll have the link to your online booth in the show notes as well for us, correct? Yes, and I will uh, link to your presentations as well. Obviously, we encourage people to take advantage of all Roots Tech has to offer. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay, so much news. And I look forward to hearing what you've got for us next month. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Lisa. Finding female ancestors poses unique challenges that can throw roadblocks in your way. And the reason for that is really simple. The women in our family tree assume the surname of their husbands when they marry. Now, since in genealogy, we're researching backwards through time, we actually encounter their married surname first. So it's really critical that we locate the records that mention the women's maiden name so that we can find her parents and continue to climb her family tree. Well, professional genealogist Shelley Bishop has come to the rescue in her new Family Tree magazine article. It's called Ladies in Waiting. And in that article, she covers 12 resources for discovering maiden names. And I'm happy to say that she's here to tell us about it right now. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. This is a great article. And I think it's going to help so many people kind of bust through that roadblock that they run into. And it really is kind of a roadblock, isn't it? It really can be. Um, it, it can be a, a real challenge. And uh, whether you've done a little bit of genealogy or a lot of research, it can definitely be a stumbling block for you. Well, I love it. You've got 12 places for us to go and look. So take us to the first location. What's your first resource for finding maiden surnames? The first thing you're going to probably want to do is see if you can find a marriage record. Um, I think that's probably the natural place to begin. And marriage records don't exist for all times and all places. So as you go back um, further in time, you may find that there aren't really marriage records. But if there are, that is going to definitely be the first place you want to look. Most marriage records could have been created at the local level. More recent ones, often at the state level. And they will usually say the woman's maiden name on there. And there can be some other clues if it doesn't state it. 
That's a great point. And kind of closely related to that are family records, right? The the records that maybe she's been collecting over the years and you might even find in our own drawers and around our house. Absolutely. Family sources can be amazing. Uh, you might find um, mention of a woman in a, a diary or uh, letters. You might read letters and they might expose relationships and names that you weren't aware of or places that you weren't aware of. And it's also important to, to talk to some family members who might know a little more or who might have some of these family materials and keepsakes that you could look at and ask them if they'd be willing to talk with you and maybe share with you. Maybe you can copy some of their, their things. Now, let's see here. You've got the family sources, the civil marriage records. What about religious records? I think you had that as number three. When there isn't a record of a, a civil record of a marriage, there could still be a religious record of a marriage. So you would want to tr- check church records and see what church records exist, again, for that time and place and where they might be held now, because that can change over time. Yeah, and there's a lot of different places, too. You might look at the baptism records of children, um, because those will often state the mother's maiden name. And again, these are church records. So there's a variety of church records that can help you. And church records uh, often go a lot farther back than the civil records, don't they? Definitely. If if you're lucky, they can go quite far back. And even um, in pioneer areas, sometimes a traveling preacher would keep his or her own records. And some of those little journals and so forth have been discovered and published now. So you can even find those. Fantastic. So that's three. Now, number four, and you touched on the children. Uh, You have here children's vital records. So what are we looking for there? Yes, children's vital records can be great. So we're looking at birth records of children if they exist. The marriage records of children sometimes will state the mother's maiden name, which is a real find. And the death records of a child may also state the maiden name. So those things are really worth checking out. You want to look for records of all of the woman's children, not just the one that you're descended from. You want to look at all of her children that she had, even if they were by a different husband, because you just never know what uh, you might find there. And if she had a child who died young, which is a sad situation, but that record may give the mother's maiden name. And um, it's a good place to, to look also. Now, you mentioned looking at all the different children. I know for me and some of my families, I find that uh, different children, whether they were born earlier or later in the woman's life, sometimes that surname kind of looks a little different on some of those. Is that the reason to look at all of them? Um, it does. The spelling of the surname and everything can change. Sometimes the children weren't exactly sure. Uh, how the the surname was pronounced or spelled. They just knew it was sort of like something. So you will get variations. And so when you find those, just compare them between the different records and be generous in your searching and try different variations, definitely, when, when you're conducting searches. What have you got as our fifth resource for finding maiden names? The fifth resource would be death records. And that would be 
both the death record of the woman herself, of course, but also, again, death records of the children, death records of her husband or husbands. They could provide her maiden name. And then if you find anyone else who is associated with her, I, I can't overestimate, overstate the importance of doing whole family research because women uh, relied on other people in their lives and they relied on men, especially. So their brothers-in-laws, their husbands, obviously, their fathers while their fathers were alive and so forth. But those death records are something you're going to want to explore for everybody that you think she might have been associated with or that might have been related to her. That's a great point, that cluster research. Mm -hmm. And I imagine when we get to the point of finding her death record, that's a much later record. And she's not standing right there making sure the name gets written down correctly. So if we can find earlier death records of associated people, that sounds like maybe it might be more accurate. Yes, that's true. And unfortunately, a lot of times, especially if a woman lived um, to enjoy ripe old age, um, that they didn't even know her maiden name. And you'll find unknown on the line where it should be. Oh, that's always hard. I <laughs> overcome. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why this article is great. You're going to help us get past the unknown. Exactly. Number six, I see here, cemetery sources. We're going to find maiden names in cemetery sources. Yeah, so, um, you know, gravestones don't give you a whole lot of information, just usually dates. You can try to find out, like, are there records that the, the cemetery has who purchased the plot uh, that she's buried in and that kind of thing? And who is she buried with? You can get great clues from seeing who she's buried with. And sometimes that's not apparent when you're just looking at a single gravestone record online. So if you can, I always recommend trying to see, go to the cemetery and see how those graves are positioned and see who she's buried with. Or you might find a published transcription that's been done by a society um, where the graves have not been put in alphabetical order. They've just been put in the order in which they were encountered when they were read. And that can also be another source of clues. Sometimes you can find a young child who's buried with his or her maternal grandparents. I had a big breakthrough that way one time, and that was the source of the maiden name. I knew this couple had a child. Unfortunately, she died young. She was buried with her mother's parents. Gosh, it's amazing how many different ways you might just stumble into it like that. Number seven, you have census records. She's living in her household with her husband. You might not see it there. How will census records help us? So census records can, can help in a lot of other ways, especially if the woman is widowed later in uh. life. Then she might be living with an adult son or adult daughter in the home of a son-in-law for instance. So that is a great way to find somebody. If you, you find a woman living in old age in with a man whose name you don't recognize, and then some another person that could be a daughter, that's really a clue to investigate. And likewise, if the woman herself died young, her children may have been taken in by her parents or her sister or something like that. So you may find if, if she died at age 36 or something like that, you may find her children living with her parents in another census record. Interesting. Okay. Oh, and number eight, one of my favorite record sources, newspapers. A good yeah. place to find maiden names? 
Oh my gosh, that is a fantastic place. You uh, would want to look, just depending on, again, the, the time period and, and the locality that you're working on, but you want to look for marriage announcements, which can vary anywhere from just a short little, you know, social note to, you know, a long, elaborate marriage announcement. And those will almost always say the name of the bride, the full maiden name of the bride. And you can also look for golden anniversary announcements. If they've been married a long time, had a 50th anniversary, a lot of times they'll give a whole rundown of when and where they married and their parents. Sometimes they'll even name their parents and they'll talk about people who attended the anniversary party, which could be her siblings. The other things are social notices. If they went from out of town to visit relatives or something like that, you might find that. And of course, obituaries. And obituaries not only of the woman and her husband, but also her children. And again, anyone that you think might have been related to you, anyone to her, anyone you think might have been her sister or her brother, try to find those. Newspapers are a great resource, and I know you've done a lot of work on them. Your your, um, book is a great guide to using newspapers. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I just love them. And like you said, there's so many different types of articles that can have that information. Okay, so gosh, we're already up to number nine. What's number nine? Number nine is published sources. And those would include things like those old uh, county and town histories, where they might talk about the early settlers of a region, who founded those um, the first members of the early churches. A lot of times you'll find women's names in there. And you also sometimes find a biographical sketch could be of her husband, her son, or her grandson. And that could be in a far distant city and state than where she ever lived. But you might find information there. And then published family histories are another place to look. A lot of times they will give the maiden names of women who married into the family. And then, of course, you have online family trees, which have to be taken with a, a little grain of salt because that they are not always as well documented as we'd like them to be. And we have to be kind of careful about just accepting what they say. But that's true, too, of the published resources. We also have to verify that information. So in, in, these, in these kinds of sources, you definitely want to do additional research to verify, to either confirm or refute the information. Right. Yeah. Very good point. (laughs) All right. And number 10, court records. Court records. So a woman's status when she was married, historically, um, she was a femme covert, where she was literally um, covered by her husband's care. And she could not make any court decisions or any financial arrangements or anything like that in her own name. Her husband was in in charge of all of that for her. Now, when she was widowed, then she could take care of her own affairs. So estate records, you might want to look at estate records of a possible father. And those will usually name both her husband and herself in these estate records. And you'll want to look at, did they receive property? Were they named in a will? And so forth like like that. So you will often see a woman named with her husband in estate records. Guardianship records could have been created if the woman died while her children were still young. 
guardianships were done to protect the property of the children against other people who might come later and try to claim that property, including a woman's future husbands. So they were to protect the the children's interests in that. So guardianship records are another place to look. And then divorce records. If the woman got divorced, that you often find her maiden name in, in that because they will go back to the original marriage. Oh, good point. Uh, Number 11, deeds. Interesting. We can find maiden names and deeds. You can occasionally find maiden names and deeds. And sometimes if you can't find the maiden name, at least you can find good clues there. Again, if her she had a father or a widowed mother who died and left property, sometimes there's not a will. And sometimes there's not a probate or a state file. In that case, you want to check the deeds. Because if they owned property, it might have just passed down to the children without going through the courts. And if that's the case, then the children had to decide how to divide up the property or they had to liquidate it. And so often some of them would sell their shares to another one or they might all sell their shares to a third party. So you want to look in the deeds. And these are called quit claim deeds because the person is quitting, basically giving up their claim to their share of the property. So if you find a deed that has that word quit claim in it, that's a good indication that that there are other people who are invested in that property who also have an interest in it, and that you might be able then to find those people, find out how they're related, and then who owned the property that they are now um, dealing with. Wow, you have terrific strategies. I mean, so many different creative ways to come at this problem of trying to find these these maiden names. And the last one is one I, I would imagine a lot of people haven't thought of, but I agree with you. I think it's a great resource. Number 12, you have military pension records. Tell folks about that. So um, if you're mystery woman was married to someone who served in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, or the Civil War. You want to check to see if either the soldier or his widow applied for a pension after the fact, because those pension records can be a gold mine. You can learn so much from them. They're, they're really, really interesting to read. There's indexes to those, and I talk about those in the article, where to find those. And um, you can look for them, and you can order the entire file from the National Archives, or sometimes those files now have been, some of them have been digitized. And you can look through it and see. In some cases, they will lay out exactly the woman's maiden name, when she was married. They'll name the children and their ages. It's just, it, you can really learn a lot. Well, we have really learned a lot from you. Gosh, Shelly, um, I think you've kind of smashed the idea that, you know, we just have to be stuck by not knowing a woman's maiden name. There are so many other places to go and look. And uh, with some little bit of diligent effort, I think we have a really good chance of success. Of course, we've been talking about Shelly's strategies, these 12 strategies she goes into in detail in her article, Ladies in Waiting. It's in the March-April issue of Family Tree Magazine. And you can find Shelly Bishop at BuckeyeFamilyTrees.com. It's been so fun to catch up with you and talk about uh, this topic. I hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you, Shelly. 
Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me. And I just want to tell everybody, keep at it, keep searching, and best of luck with finding those maiden names. In today's Family History Home segment, I've invited our columnist, David Frixell, back to the show. He's going to help us make our family history home just a little sweeter smelling. Hi, Dave. (laughs) Hi, it's good to be back. (laughs) It's good to have you back. And uh, people may be wondering what, what I mean in this introduction, but you had a really interesting question in your column. Now, the column is called, Now What? And I know you you get faced with a lot of different challenging questions. And I want to read this one that you got, and maybe you can tell us how you answered it. The reader wrote, I've inherited a tote of old loose family pictures that have a terrible smell. How do I remove the smell without damaging the pictures? You know, it's funny, we all kind of run into those old photo albums. And I I think I do remember some of that little photo smell. What did you uh, tell her to do? Well, this was a I mean, because the question, the uh, column is called, now what? We tend to get a lot of questions that are not necessarily easy to answer or obvious, or otherwise people wouldn't be, you know, turning to us. But I managed to find some experts at uh, the Association for Library Collections and Technical Services who know about these things. And they had some great tips there. The suggestion was to start by putting the, if you have loose photos, to put them in zip top bags and then put them in the freezer. Um, if you've got a whole photo album, you can wrap it in wax paper before freezing because it wouldn't, might, it wouldn't fit a zip top. And so the idea there is if, if the problem is mold, that will stop any active mold growth. And it sort of buys you time to clean and repair you know, the photos. <clears throat> so once you've got them in the freezer, uh, remove one batch of stinky photos at a time, <laughs> unbag it, defrost it. Now, if you suspect mold or you know, if you can see mold, um, ex- inspect each batch um, wearing gloves. And you know those N95 masks that we got to love during the pandemic? Pull those out, put that on because you don't want to be breathing in a whole bunch of mold. So then use a damp cotton ball or Q-tip to gently clean any areas that seem to have any, you know, any mold. Now, if that doesn't do it, if it still stinks, maybe for some who knows why, um, whether it's mold or some other cause, you can put the photos in a small lidless bin. I thought this was really an interesting technique. You put it in a small open bin inside a larger bin that you can put a lid on. Then you spread baking soda or activated charcoal, or you can buy fragrance-free absorb- odor absorbers like from Amazon in the larger bin. So you've got the small bin with the photos surrounded by odor absorbers. Close the lid, and it might take a month or more. Um, so check it after a month and then repeat as necessary if they're still stinky. The idea is basically, you know, the, the smell is emanating from these old photos and you're trapping it in the material like baking soda or activated charcoal that's in the bin. And because the larger bin is closed, the stink is not getting out. It's stuck in there with the odor absorbers, you hope. So another option, uh, library preservation experts recommend something called microchamber. And this is a, like an interleaving paper that you place in between photos in a stack or between album pages. And th- these will absorb some of the stink and other, other things that you're trying you know, to get rid of. 
And again, that might take a couple of applications if these are really stinky photos um, <laughs> in order to get you know them completely clear. Bottom line, then, if all else fails and they still stink, um, you know, hold your nose, scan the photos. Remember to scan the backs if there's something written there. You know, great aunt Ida, blah blah blah. Make sure you scan that. Then put the originals in a tightly closed box. You know, somewhere where you can't spell them. And uh, at least you'll have them scanned. And if you lose the scans or something, you still have the photos somewhere out of smelling range where you can pull them out and, you know, rescan them again. So, yeah, it's a problem that we, uh, you know, you could easily find with maybe not even just photos, but old letters or any other sort of old um, documentation that uh, has fallen on, you know, hard times. Who knows where these smells come from, but apparently... There are some things you can do to, you know, get rid of them. Wow, that is amazing. And I could see how if you just put them back in with the rest of your stuff, you end up with the potential of it contaminating or making other things not smell good. Yeah. Uh, and of course... And you know how smells go. You know, they, you yeah. You get one little bad smell and sort of pretty soon your whole place smells or everything it touches smells or, you know... Yes, so, exactly. Yeah, oh my it. gosh. Well, and how interesting you're kind of using your own detective skills to track down these answers to some of these uh, unique and challenging questions. I bet you have a lot of fun writing the now what column. Do you get lots of challenges? It, it is. And, you know, some of them uh, I just can't solve. The, the, the family member researcher can't solve them. Um, they've hit some terrible dead end and, you know, those records aren't there. Um, but I try to at least provide some, you know, okay, here's another place you could look or some ideas. I particularly like ones where, you know, there's some mystery that we can draw a lesson for, give information beyond just, you know, what happened to, you know, great uncle Harry. The same column has one uh, about a person who has no social security file. Um, he was born in the 1890s, the ancestor. Why would they not have uh, registration with the Social Security Administration. So that gave me an excuse, if you will, to go and ferret out exactly when did people start getting Social Security numbers and did everybody get Social Security numbers all at once or actually it took a little while. So it's And there's some kinds of jobs where you didn't necessarily get a number right away. Um, so there may be an explanation for why um, there was no Social Security file. And that teaches a little bit something about history and whether you might be able to find that information about, you know, your own ancestor. Well, I really enjoyed the answer that you wrote in the Now What column to that question. So I encourage everybody to go check it out. It's fascinating. And we're talking about the Now What column uh, in Family Tree Magazine by David Frixell. And these questions and answers are going to be found in the March-April 2023 issue of the magazine. Always great to talk to you. Can't wait to hear in the coming months other answers that you have uncovered for our readers. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Well, as we wrap up this episode, it is time to stop by the editor's desk. And today we're talking to the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Hey, it looks like this March-April issue of the magazine is uh, just around the corner. We've had the opportunity to talk to Shelley Bishop, who's got an article in the magazine. Uh, but I'd love to have you give us a remainder of the preview of what we can look forward to in the issue. Definitely. Yeah, we've sort of internally been thinking about this issue as the newspaper's issue. 
since so many of the articles are about these really great resources that are increasingly coming online. The cover story is a comparison of the mega newspaper websites, such as newspapers.com and Genealogy Bank. We look at the size of these different collections, where their strengths are, um, how much you can expect to pay. Really great um, look at, at those websites. And we've also got a roundup of the more local databases where you can find state and local newspapers sort of at the archival level or uh, through libraries. If you're not convinced that newspapers can be worthwhile, you'll really like our case study, which profiles how one researcher built an ancestor's timeline using basically exclusively newspapers. And his ancestor had a really fascinating life that was documented in print. And then, of course, we also have our cheat sheet, which in this issue is all about historical newspapers. And there you'll find tutorials, search tips, sample records, and other sort of can't miss quick reference materials that'll help you make the best use of these great publications. Oh, you got to love newspapers. I mean, gosh, such a unique type of records. You see stuff that you don't see in any other kind of genealogy record. And you get the advantage of um, going through all this material as you're pulling the issue together. Have you had opportunities to kind of take some of the strategies from these different articles and apply them to your own research? Oh, definitely. Yeah. While I was fact-checking this issue, I found this really great article in a local newspaper about my great-grandfather's family. So my grandfather was one of 10, and uh, his family was given an award by a local Catholic university. It was Family of the Year. And the um, profile that I found in the newspaper was really astounding. It had um, names of all 10 children, what their education was, their ages, uh, occupations for those of them who were working outside of the home. And they had this great quote from my great-grandfather about his family um, that I share in the editor's note, but it was a really great reminder that you shouldn't stop at obituaries. I think a lot of people sort of think that's all there is to newspapers, or they think of newspapers, oh, well, death notices, obituaries, that's it, right? And national news. But you can also find these really great sort of social columns or profile-type articles like the one I found of my great-grandfather and his family, and they can really add a lot to your research. Oh, Wow. Gosh, family of the year. How appropriate. (laughs) That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. And I talk about this in the column, but he was quoted as saying, I I can't really keep all my kids' ages and names straight. My wife has them written in the book. And I couldn't believe he said this. He said, it's really helpful when the census taker comes by. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. Okay. Well, we have so much to look forward to. Hopefully everybody listening will find a gem like that in newspapers. Check out that March, April, 2023 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Always great to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. You too. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad you joined me for this March 2023 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. As always, I'm going to have links on the show notes webpage for you for everything that we talked about today. And you can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. Now, if you're listening to the show through a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcasts, Will you do us a big favor and leave us a five-star review? We really appreciate it. It helps other people uh, find the show and know that it's worth listening to. 
Thanks again for joining me today. I am Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me over at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll find a link to my Genealogy Gems podcast and the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 